0: I would have just, I would have just died in a hotel room in Budapest or something, you know. And they'd have found found me when the maid said that that room number seventeen smells like dead body.
1: Uh, It's been like three weeks. It It hasn't come out for dinner yet. Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
0: everybody, Pre-Accident Podcast, Todd Conklin, how are you doing? Well, I hope good. I mean, I don't know. It seems like there's interesting developments happening all around the world. If you're following anything, and I'm pretty sure you are, uh, it's been, who knows? <laughs> it's... Uh, it seems like to me there's a ray of hope ahead of us. I don't know what is going on with the pandemic. That is beyond my ability to predict, except that I will tell you all the guys we've talked to on this podcast, around the epidemiologists and the docs and stuff that we've talked to, they all pretty clearly said this is a 36-month ride. And uh, I, I don't know if I was in denial, probably. I mean, because that makes the most sense to me. Or if I'm just stupid, which also could be right. But I didn't think I believed it. Well, I think I believed it. I heard it. It didn't sink in. That's what I wanted to say. It didn't sink in. And now it's pretty obvious that we're on a 36-month ride. I just picked up uh, the three-ply mask because I was told that we need to move to a little more robust mask. And so now I'm a three-ply guy. You could call me a three-ply guy. That's uh, That would be my new moniker, if it were. But all in all, it's the the election happened it's still really up in the air and goofy and there's tons of stuff going on there but all in all i'm feeling encouraged maybe that's a good word to say i don't know that seems like a good word to say today's pod's interesting i I think you'll like it so cory pitzer from safe map if you know Corey, um interesting fun i love his hairstyle guy who's been working with major companies, mostly in mining, although I don't know if that's true necessarily now. I think he's expanded greatly around uh really understanding safety, kind of new view safety stuff. Uh he's he's a super he's a great speaker. I mean he tells a story about an elephant that is uh worth looking up on the internet if you get a chance to. That's really good. Cory Pitts and I are on a kind of a co project and we're doing a a project. And they asked that we put together a podcast for the internal, what do they call it? Data pool, data farm. No, I don't know. There's a, additional data available for this project we're doing. And so we, we got together to put together a podcast and I secretly, well, not secretly. I mean, I think we knew we were doing it, but I, I recorded a, a big part of what Corey talked about and what I talked about. Because I kinda thought you guys might be interested. This isn't really the podcast podcast. I mean, it's the podcast, it's my podcast, but it's not really the the final work product, because they're gonna put that together. I have no idea what that's gonna sound like. But it's a it's a discussion that Corey and I have around really if you pushed me the maturity path, is that the right word? Maturity model that an organization goes on as an organization is is really transforming towards understanding really operational reliability so it's it's bigger than safety and environment and health but it certainly encompasses all those things but it's really about this idea of operational reliability and and that discussion is is really what we want to talk about today so it's in a couple parts and I'll kind of transition between cuz it's it, i I kinda grab snippets for you guys. I mean, that was my intent, so I'm fine with it. That you could really get a chance to listen to this. And so that's what we're gonna do today. That's that's an exciting I, I think you'll really like this. It's it's the topic's exciting. It's always interesting to me to think about how organizations transform. How does change happen um in an organization? And 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 the quick answer is that it happens. Really kind of, in Spanish, we'd say paso y paso, one, one step at a time. And really, when you look at those steps and you think about them each as kind of individual interventions to how organizations move, it's pretty cool. And that is really, I mean, I don't want to break it to you, so I'll be as gentle as possible. That's kind of what you do for a living, is what you do for a living is, is really help organizations manage change that's our job whether you're in DevOps or, or medicine or a pilot would whatever you do you, you you have operational duties for sure but what you're really doing is helping have a different conversation and that's been interesting because there's a lot of like right now there's there's a lot of people that are really holding on very tightly to the old view at, at the risk of uh, looking crazy and and creating a lot of aggression there's there's a big push to say, You know, the old way was good. The old way was good. Eh, I don't think that's true. And the one thing I think that the pandemic has done for us is really allowed us to understand that there's really no need to go back to some of the old habits that existed before the crisis just to have those old habits come back after the crisis. Normal is what normal is and that our normal can change because our normal has changed. And it has. It's dramatically changed. Think about how more, how much more comfortable you are doing a meeting on the computer than you would have been a year ago today. And then tell me normal hasn't changed. That's the conversation we're going to have. So let's l- listen to this because I think you'll find it pretty interesting. I, I think it's kind of fun. I'm excited about this one. So this is a conversation between myself, yo, that's me, and young Corey Pitzer. And we're going to talk about really how organizations transform and what that transformation looks like. I've
1: done some really fascinating research with the data right. that came out of this, um, out of this exercise. We, uh, we had over 2,000 fatal accident scenarios that we've uncovered. And to dig into those trends and depth of that, to me, was just absolutely fascinating. So I spent like almost two months after the whole thing just analyzing the data and doing a like an a, a, a in-depth analysis. It's almost like, a, a, you know, what are the trends? What can they look for, et cetera. And But it, to me, was fascinating. It was literally investigating, if you can call it investigating, over 2,000 fatal events. That's what this amounted to. What did you learn? So I, I loved it. Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's some interesting um, uh, indicators that came out of this. Uh, one of the most pronounced indicators was, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the issue of risk transparency in an organization. It's, and, and everybody's struggling with it. You know, let's get people to report accidents and near misses. And, 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 and what came out in the data was there was a ratio Every every one non hideable near miss, you know, there was some property damage. I couldn't hide it. Right. There were four. There were four that were hidden, readily hidden. By you know, they just don't report it. There's no evidence. People just don't say anything. And that ratio is actually quite fascinating. So we're using the ratio now with uh, with clients that if they and so I analyze and say okay show me your, your near-miss reports. And, and, and 90% of them, 99%, sometimes 100% of them, just simply had to be reported, couldn't be hidden. Right. So they're not, they're not near a transparency level that is really sitting in the organization. To me, that was like a, a really great um, uh, finding because we found fatal events that would most likely never happen if you can use a, a subjective term like that, but you know, there's, this this in Botswana, there's a rainy season, a heavy rainy season every four or five years, and every four or five years, this guy tells me he once or twice during the rainy season, the the, the ore in a bin that comes down on a conveyor belt clogs up, and then he he has to get he has to get underneath it with a pick on the wow. belt. <laughs> And he lies there and he chips it open until it falls. And he, and he, and he ducks out before the, it, it traps him in. So what a rarity, absolute rarity. And and, and yet if, if, if he gets entrapped, it'll be like, oh, shit, this is, you know, the typical, it's obvious it's going to happen. Yeah, you know, yeah. They of, sh- he so,
0: should have so, known. He should have stopped before he did that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. All this kind of uh, issues uh, that would normally get rained down on this guy because he's now dead, you know. Um, But, you know, that's the kind of of intriguing things that that came out.
0: That's amazing, uh, actually.
1: And and I've got like 2,000 stories like this. It's just incredible.
0: Figuring out a way to get it to senior leadership so that it's not scary but helpful and not so simple that it's kind of dumbed down is is really – that would be a challenge, actually.
1: Yeah, what you know what I what I did, what I did discover, as I was starting to work with this concept in other organizations, um, I started realizing that people's depth of thinking is not deep at all in the safety arena. You know, there is a very very superficial, um, uh, not not even touching the surface thinking going on. I mean. I I found a guy that could not understand the concept of hideable and non-hideable near-miss reports. He just couldn't get up his head around it, you know, and and it would have to be explained. And, you know, and I, you, you, then this guy manages, you know, like a department of like 400 people. He can't manage that. So that's that, a little bit of a, 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 you know, uh, I think, um, the, and it comes back to, to, you know, to this to this new thinking in safety that they've struggled, they're struggling with old thinking. Mm-hmm.
0: It's true, though. Yeah, I, I how mean, are they gonna? I mean, my response to that is we've sort of, in a way, historically created the audience we have no, by, by making it by making it really look like, you know, if the worker cared more, this wouldn't have happened. And for years, all our investigations were just elaborate ways of saying, you know, the worker was disengaged, non-situationally aware, whatever word you want to use. And yeah. so they always thought, you know, this isn't really my problem. I'm scored by it, and it makes a difference to my salary, but it's not my problem. And and I think that's, that's really the major battle we've been fighting for the last 20 years, I think, is just getting people to understand that, the workers not the problem. The workers the solution.
1: But you know, it's 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 our profession, but it's also our uh, the majority of our fellow consultants in the field that are selling these simplistic stuff yeah. because they know if they tell the manager your worker is a problem, I got a solution for you. Yeah, it, immediately that's going to sell like hell, and yeah. that's and this whole behaviorism was, was was driven by that.
0: You yep. know? Um, you're exactly so right. I
1: don't know how you're gonna get more depth of thinking beyond that because they don't wanna because that means I actually just thought I, I spent uh, uh, a couple of hours with a dozer drivers, and um, and I, I I stood there and had a chat with this guy and I was astounded that he would communicate things to me that you would not get a, some of our safety professionals. <laughs> You know, he, he his his answer. He says to me at one, "Of course, they're going to blame us for the accidents because if they don't blame us, they have to blame themselves because they make the systems." Said, <laughs> well, you know, that's very logical, but you know, not many people believe that or, or think that way.
0: Yeah, I think that way for sure.
1: And at one at one point, this guy says to me, um, he says to me, "You know, safety is like this. Management is lying to us." and we're lying to management. That's the safety
0: game. That's a great (laughs) quote, though. That's really powerful. It is a beautiful quote.
1: Management is lying to us, and we're lying to management. That's how we get by on safety here.
0: So the conversation proceeded, of course, because that's what conversations do, or at least good ones do, right? And I started to ask the question that you're probably thinking I should ask, which is, well, how do we do this? How do we get this message up there? How do we help organizations transform? And that's when Corey defined really the process that they are using as six individual interventions. So let's listen to what Corey has to say. It's
1: basically uh, a a six-step process. And the various categories in which we operate this whole thing is uh, a change of vision um, because the organization has got the strong focus on zero harm and is now moving beyond that and, and, and wanting to move beyond that. So that will be a first step of our process, and then uh, from there we will uh, support them to to basically reset their strategies, you know, the overall strategies organization that will be more aligned with this new thinking. The whole model of new new safety has been accepted as it is. You know, this is where they want to go, and uh, they want to uh, develop that process forward. So that's the the process that we will then follow is to is to very focused on uh, aligning leadership practices because that's where the transitioning has to happen in terms of how they act and, uh, and how they think and how they respond to failure, et and the whole And the whole concept of what failure means uh, and human beings in that process, you know, the notion of uh, um, uh, the downstream blaming of the, of the operator. So that's what a, a big initiative will be is the leadership development in the organization. Offering is, is a re-engineering, Make it more lean. Uh, make it more dynamic, and also build into the whole process, as a, almost like a pressure test process, self self testing process, self challenging process. Um, what we what we in our terminology call uh, delta, the deep elimination of latent triggers of accidents, this is a risk management approach that we've developed, and then also the 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 reskilling of people, in terms of of risk competence in the organization, so each of these elements are sitting on this uh, on this pathway that uh, that that is crafted out in terms of uh, deployment, and each of these uh, has a intervention that we've developed and used and with some company and with other companies, and each of these is a is like a, a step stone uh, in the process.
0: Yeah. So the the key I think is. Helping them, I'm. I'm trying to remember your terms, but it's the. It's the. It was a revision.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the starting point is a revisioning of the how they define safe, safety. Safety. So,
0: so to me, the the redefinition of safety, the revision of safety, is going to be the primary challenge in really transformation of an organization, because it's really shifting from a a, a current view not a bad view or a wrong view but a current view to a much more contemporary view and the challenge is is that you're going to upset a lot of old strongly held beliefs and in a culture that's really aligned very aggressively towards zero t- towards prevention which isn't bad and i always worry about this because i'm afraid it sounds bad but prevention's a really powerful strategy the problem is, is that prevention alone isn't sufficient. And that really yeah. what we want to talk about when we talk about moving organizations to a more contemporary understanding of the larger um, notion of managing really safeguards and controls around risk, what we want to do is is really move them to a position where they understand that the traditional view has probably put them in a place where they're biased towards the belief that everything is about preventing risk. And I would suggest in, in the industry risk is really normal and always present and incredibly dynamic. So risk doesn't go away. Therefore we can't really manage risk. What we manage is the organization's ability to do high risk work. And we do that, by really breaking the bonds of prevention. Prevention matters. It still matters. Everything we can mitigate, everything we can remove, everything we can make safer, everything we can design, we should do. The problem is is we can't mitigate everything, and we can't fix everything, and we can't design everything. And so a lot of attention has to be paid towards the understanding that what we're really doing is confirming and lining controls, safeguards, and systems to actually help us understand that risk. And you're right. One of the challenges is, is we have to get risk from an invisible discussion or a, a non-public discussion to a much more public discussion because once we understand where the risk is, then we're much more effective at actually placing controls in that system. And that's that's really powerful. I mean, if we yeah. can make a system and we shift our thinking from if this happens to when this happens, then we're kind of removing some of the uncertainty from the risk picture, which actually makes it easier to talk about risk because we're not really talking about risk. We just assume risk is 100%. What we're talking about is really the presence of systems and controls, processes, procedures, practices, competencies, all the things that actually prepare a system and prepare an organization to have risk. That is really an interesting conversation. Because the challenge is, is you've got to move them away from the belief that everything bad happened because we failed to prevent it from happening. So, you know, traditionally we look at accidents and we investigate not what happened, but we dutifully and kind of deeply investigate how we failed to prevent it from happening. When in reality, and this is what kind of your life's work has been, Corey, in reality, the notion that we failed to prevent it is not terribly interesting because it happened and everything will eventually happen. so the happening part isn't very interesting. What becomes very interesting to me is how we fail to control it. And that difference between prevention and control, it's kind of like the relationship between robust and resilient. Those two words have to coexist. They have to exist together. Um, because a robust response is the prevention response. We keep things from happening with robust systems. But when it does happen, and it will, do we have enough resilience built in the system so that we can recover gracefully, or recover effectively? And so you have to really break the bonds of the old thinking. But you have to do it in such a way that you don't throw the old thinking away because the old thinking's not bad. It, it got them to where they are. But you want to add to this, this new thinking. And that challenge is a big part of what we talk about. And how we get there is is kind of fun. Is it an
1: aspect of the old thinking that you think should be thrown away?
0: Yes. Yeah, there's there's definitely some artifacts in the old thinking that have um, somehow gotten in there. I, I wanted to say sort of sneaked in there. But they've somehow gotten in there and and they've not been helpful. And so there's a couple things that I think are, are worth throwing away almost immediately. One is this idea that all accidents are preventable. That's killing people. I mean, and by saying killing people, I mean that's killing people. Because the notion that accidents are all preventable really puts all of the money, energy, effort, and resources in these super elaborate prevention programs that basically count on workers being psychic enough to realize they're about to fail and then stopping it before they actually kill themselves. So that's been really bad. In fact, if you believe all accidents are preventable, there's no need to build resilience in a system because if you actually meet your goal, you've prevented every bad thing from happening. Well, Mm -hmm. the bottom line on that is, I mean, go through a a pandemic um, because, you know, we're in one now. And one of the things that's interesting is that the pandemic has really made us understand collectively as a globe, as a world, that um, uncertainty is really hard to understand and predict. And we can't manage the future by trying to predict the future because we're not very good at it. What we have to manage is our ability to have variability, our ability to have uncertainty. So the old days we really built our systems so they were aligned towards efficiency, better, faster, cheaper, shareholder value. I mean, we looked at reducing costs, leaning a system out, doing more work for less. Those were really important values, and they were pretty shared globally. Now we're Mm -hmm. in a position where those values aren't as interesting. They're still important, but now there's a real push towards building resilience in a system because organizations that didn't have some tolerance for variability, really suffered during the pandemic. I mean, surprisingly so. And organizations that had a lot of capacity, read that as um, uh, additional space for unexpected events to happen and recoverability built into their system when they did happen, those organizations actually are, are not only surviving the global change, but in many ways thriving through the global change. And so now we have a really a push to align our systems towards efficiency and resilience. And for the first time at least in my career, resilience has come to the table, capacities come to the table, risk control has come to the table. It's all the same thing, right? In a way that's yeah. that's got more credibility and more sexiness if I can use that word um, than it's ever had before. And so now leaders at all levels of the organization are thinking about, okay, when uncertainty happens, when this fails, when the unexpected event happens, what is our tolerance for recoverability? How how much latitude do we have to actually get out of this? And, and that's, well, I mean, speaking frankly, that's what we've been talking about for years and years and years. Not that we're old, because we're not old, Corey. We're young. We're incredibly young. We're incre- <laughs> I mean... Just mere babies. But we've been talking about that for 25, 30 years, right? Yeah. Is that you have to have capacity in a system because you can't predict variability. You you just can't. And then when it happens, that's a part of it. And that's what's so interesting about this conversation is we're really moving the organization from a pretty efficient safety system where we tracked and trend ankle sprains in order to predict the future and our path ahead for ankles to now we're really talking about the fact that when systems fail, especially critical, critical to quality, critical to safety, critical to production, critical to operation, right? When a critical environment, when critical systems fail, do we have enough tolerance? Do we have enough recoverability in that system that we can actually get better? Uh, Maybe one
1: last thing that, um, uh, resilience engineering, Resilience, uh, resilience management—all of these things are very engineering uh, tools and techniques, of thinking, or thinking, or has the image of it, and is an organization that is driving very much forward with value-based thinking, right. value-based safety, um, and, and, and so. And you use the words values there. Just maybe a little bit of um, elaboration on on the role of value thinking in our taking care of people so, uh, as a, as, a, as an example. So
0: that's a really important comment that you just brought up. So one of the problems when you use words like resilience or, or the word capacity, which is the word I've used a lot, and I'm not sure the word capacity has a lot of meaning. It does in my head. Like if you're in my head right now, it's a super meaningful term. Is that we want to translate that traditionally back into a very linear mode. We want to think about it uh, the way an engineer would think about it. Because... Our organizations are pretty engineering centric because engineering has really, if efficiency mattered, then engineering was a really powerful part of creating that efficiency. I challenge everyone around the notion of resilience because I think there's emotional resilience. I think there's psychological resilience. And in fact, I would suggest one of the more magical parts about being a human being is how incredibly resilient people are and that the people that we work with every single day have been through tremendous trials and tribulations in their world. Incredible, incredible things have happened to them. And they get up the next morning and go to work and do their job. And so part of what I would challenge guys like you and I, and anybody that really starts thinking about this, is that our job is to really make sure when we talk about resilience We're really talking about it from a value space, that a resilient organization at a primary level at first principles understands that the most precious resource they have are the people. And the most precious resource they can use is their time when they talk to, listen to, engage their people in thinking about identifying problems and creating solutions. And one of the most important parts of this robust, resilient coupling is that we want to build systems that are robust around how we treat people. That the bottom line is our basic principle is our people are our value and we'll always default towards supporting our people. And then build resilience so that when things happen, we have the ability to go in and restore the organization's capacity to actually do high-risk work better than they've ever done it before. My intent was not for me to end this. It, it's 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 Corey started. I mean, this this podcast took a turn, right? Not a turn for the worse, but Corey started actually asking me questions, and I'm a big blabbermouth, so I talked about the stuff that I talked about, which really was the intent of the initial purpose of doing this internal podcast for this project we're on, and so that's where I guess my part of the podcast. Existed, But I really thought this conversation was worth listening to because I, I think that interchange of ideas is valuable for all of us to listen to because it's kind of how change happens. Revisioning, re-understanding, redefining. That's what we're doing is we're, we're giving people new philosophical Foundations is that the word I wanted. Planks. I was thinking of planks. I was in my head. I was going to build a scaffolding, but but we're, we're we have these new philosophical truisms or or basic assumptions. Maybe that's a better word. God, that's a hard thing to figure out. And 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 that's what we're doing is we're constantly taking the old learning and attaching new learning to it, which is how learning happens, right? You don't you don't destroy the old and replace it with the new you you take old learning and attach new learning to it. You mature people's philosophical understanding of complex systems and resilience and safety and high performance and high reliability and all the stuff we do. That's what we do. And that was the discussion. And that's the one I wanted to share with you. So good luck, you guys send us good vibes over here. We need them. If you're listening internationally, That'll help us a ton. Until then, learn something new every single day. And I think today was a good day to do that. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to one another because that's valuable. Wear your masks. And for goodness sakes, be safe.